And that's truly not the way to do PR in 2024. I think that worked maybe 20 years ago, but things are just different nowadays. So for example, we do a lot of news jacking, which Mm. sounds kind of wild, but essentially what it means is we're constantly looking at trends and breaking news and we're figuring out how can we latch our client onto that trend or that breaking news topic. And so we get a ton of features for our clients from doing that. So other agencies see it, they like it, they bring clients to us. Hi, everyone. This is Joshua Hoffman and Alex Garashenko, and welcome to another episode of the Masters in Marketing Agency podcast, where we deconstruct the why and how agency owners found their success, and in season three, discuss how to build a community and referral network. Today, I have Jen Hartman, the CEO of Neat the Agency, a firm based in Louisville that serves as a trusted marketing, PR, and creative agency partner to over 280 startups and Fortune 500 brands. Welcome, Jen. Hi, I'm so excited to be here. I know we talked about this right before the recording, but I feel like I was focusing on saying the word Louisville so much that I like butcher. I like, like it, it sounded like I couldn't even read the rest. I was like, just get Louisville, right? Just go. Get Louisville. <laughs> um, but where I want to start uh, is something uh, that I thought was the most obvious place. And that's your past life as a BMX racer. Um, so I have to know, how'd you get into racing? Okay. So when I was younger, I want to say like eight or nine years old, I really wanted to race motocross because my dad actually raced motocross. But anybody who knows motocross knows that it's incredibly dangerous. You can literally die racing. So instead, we had a family friend who did BMX racing that looked interesting and it was like the next best thing. So BMX racing was what I did from the age of eight all the way up until 22, 23 when I retired. I absolutely loved my time in BMX racing. I started out racing locally in Pennsylvania, where I'm from, and moved up to racing on the state and regional level, and then quickly moved up to racing nationals. Did did you have like a part of your house that had like all the trophies type thing? Like, is that? Yeah, yeah. I, 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 oh, <laughs> oh, yes, yes. We had a, a well. My brother also raced BMX, so between the two of us, there were so many trophies. And for some reason, with BMX racing, when you race nationals you get these like huge trophies that are as tall as you. So I had all of these like five foot tall trophies. We don't have them anymore, thankfully, but yeah, they took up a lot. What'd you do with them? I think my mom gave them away. What's the value value of having like someone else's trophy? I was going to ask, I was like, I was going to ask when you moved and like had your own house and everything. Was there that one trophy that you kept or is that like the past life? No, I don't have any of my trophies. (laughs) <laughs> I'm a little, a little oh, sad about it, but I do still have my BMX bike and like my helmet and everything. And sometimes when I'm feeling crazy, I'll go to the BMX track and just <laughs> ride <laughs> around, relive the glory days. I literally thought you said you were going to say you just put it, put them on. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I just walk around the house and I feel good about myself. That's literally what I thought you were going to say. Um, and I guess, you know, where I want to tie this a little bit into, you know, the business and everything is we, when we had our discovery call, you know, I asked you like what in, in the ages between like five and 12 you know, impacted you being a leader or, or something. So I'm going to borrow, you know, obviously you being a BMX rider and say like, you know, is there anything that you learned from racing that you brought to the agency? Yeah, absolutely. So with BMX racing, even if you're on a team and you're sponsored, it's still an individual sport, much like track or swimming, you are out there and you are by yourself. And so you own your wins and you own your losses. So I did learn the value of ownership, which I've taken into my business and being a CEO and a core value of ours at Neat is ownership. And I really believe that ownership starts with the top down. So 
I own my mistakes. I mess up every single day. And I'm the first one to be like, hey guys, I fucked up. Here's what I did wrong. And here's what I'm going to do to fix it. And because it starts with me, that has carried over into the rest of the team. And it's so great to see. And not only is it ownership, but people come to the table and they say, here's the solution. Like not just, hey, I messed up, but here's what I'm going to do to fix it. And that's really something that started with me and our COO. And again, it started way back in the day with BMX racing. The other thing that I learned throughout my time racing BMX is risk-taking. I think because BMX racing is an extreme sport, I really understand the value of taking a risk in order to get a reward. Like Taking a risk doesn't bother me at all. And I think it's a lot of it has to do with BMX racing and how risky of a sport it is. You don't know if you're going to, in a 30-second BMX race, you don't know if you're going to win. You don't know if you're going to fall and break your arm. You don't know if you're going to fall and be paralyzed. Like You don't know what's going to happen in 30 seconds, but everyone who races knowingly takes that risk. As a fellow risk taker, I've put myself in the hospital a couple of times. So in a business setting, is there ever, do you ever go too far with the risk? Like, do you ever just say like, yes, I'm a risky person. Let's, let's try everything. Or is there a little bit more strategy when it comes to it now? I think that the further along I go, the more I think about the risk. When I was first getting started, I was like, yeah, not a big deal. Let's do this. And I wouldn't really think it through. And now that I have a team of women to take care of and I have their families to think about, I think things through a little bit more at this point in business. But yeah, there have definitely been times where I've taken it a little bit too far. Like for example, I took a risk on hiring someone who was fresh out of undergrad and she ended up stealing hours from the business, faking hours, not doing her job. And I kept her on for a little bit too long. And that was a risk for me, like hiring someone who really didn't have the experience and have the professional um, know-how. That was a huge risk and it ended up backfiring on me. Um, I've taken risks on different investments in the business that didn't necessarily pay off either. And part of that is just being a business owner, right? Like in order to make money, you're going to have to spend a little bit of money. And I have spent money that didn't yield a return on my investment. Are you hiring employees that tend to be risk takers as well? Or mm. are you hiring, are you filling the gaps to? No. Oh my gosh. Can you imagine if it was like 15 little <laughs> risk takers on the team? <laughs> that would be not good. So no, I do not look for people who are risk takers. In fact, to me, I would be a little bit alarmed if I was talking to a bunch of people who like grew up racing BMX. I'd be like, no, no, no. Like that, this is not going to work for me. Like I need people who are a little bit safer to balance me out. Same, similar question, but athletes. Cause you know, mm -hmm. I think not every athlete or every sport is is as high risk. So rather than asking about the question for risk, what about athletes? Because this is something that we've talked about a, a decent amount, especially if the owner was an athlete or something like that. And uh, they find a lot of value in hiring athletes. Do you see the same thing? Uh, for sure. I would say that a high percentage of our employees played professional sports or competed at like the top level of their sport, whatever that might look like. Um, and I think athletes do have certain traits. They know how to work really, really hard. And they also know how to take feedback. They're very coachable. Mm. And so, yes, I think athletes develop these skills that do carry over into the workplace. I think it's been one of the more like 
constant things that I've learned through this podcast is not, not that, you know, if you're not an athlete, you're not a good employee or something like that, but, but you nailed it. Like coachability, uh, discipline, mm-hmm. it's like that, they kind of just come with, and, and those are things you can't teach. So when you have that kind of foundation, it allows you to say like, okay, let me then teach you about marketing. And I know it can, you're going to kind of handle the rest. So I think that's a, I think that's a great point. And I guess speaking about your team, I was reading an article um, about how you started the agency as a solopreneur for the first six months. Um, so I guess I'm wondering, you know, were you working your previous job or did you just quit to start the agency? Yeah. So it was a side hustle for a couple of months while I was working my corporate job. And then going into 2020, I just wanted a clean break. So I went all in on the business at that point and was doing that full time. However, I look back and I'm like, that wasn't that was a risky move that I made because I truly didn't have the revenue to support that decision. But I was like, I'm just going to go for it, right? Like what's in my mind? I was like, what's the worst that could happen? I just go back to working a job or I get a part-time job, whatever it may be. Like I knew that I would figure it out and I wanted to give myself a chance to succeed without using my corporate job as a crutch because that's really what it was going to turn into is I knew I was going to get a paycheck every two weeks. And so if I knew I was getting a paycheck every two weeks, why would I put any effort into something that wasn't yielding a return for me quite yet? And so that was honestly one of the riskiest decisions I've made in the business, but it ultimately paid off because I'm still here today. (laughs) But, you know, I I think any risk taker learns how to eventually de-risk. So was there anywhere that you were able to somewhat de-risk the risk or, you know, did you have clients before you quit? Like, how did that look that you're like, okay, you know, I, I feel confident enough to do this? Not enough to justify my decision, like not enough clients to justify saying like, we're going to go and do the dang thing. But I am very confident and I grew up in in a world in which my mom thought I was the best thing since sliced bread. I was always pretty and smart and kind and all the things and I got all the praise. And so that really carried with me into adulthood. And I'm very delusional about like, my ability is like, I think I can do anything. And I think it's because my parents told me I could do anything. And I really believe that. And so I approached it from a point of me being DeLulu and thinking like, you can figure it out because I can figure out anything. Um, and so I don't know if that really answered your question or not, but I just no, have I this, so. I have this just self-confidence, like this unwavering level of self-confidence that I I knew I could do it. I fi- I knew I could figure it out. And at the same time, I was like, well, if God forbid I don't figure it out, I'm very employable. I can go back to working for someone. And of course, this was like right before COVID. And so I, my thought process like obviously wouldn't have tracked with COVID happening in March 2020. But in January 2020, I was like, no, I got this. Like if things don't work, I'll go work for someone else. And that wouldn't have been an option a couple months later. We actually had this discussion yesterday with uh, with Teresa. Um, we haven't recorded the episode with her, but it was on the discovery call and we talked about mindset. Um, I think that, yeah, that plays a lot into a leadership role instead of like, and Josh, she mentioned this, which is, which is interesting. The, um, if people focus on a certain change that they need to make, um, they're always kind of like battling the status quo of what they're in and trying to change instead of just like that delusion that you're saying you're having, it just, that's the mindset. Like that's the mindset that I'm in. You just, and you just play towards that role. 
Yeah, what the what I call it, uh, and it's like this theory that I have, I call it stress-free shampoo. And it's basically this idea that people that are stressed out, they start to buy stress-free candles and stress-free shampoo and stress-free books. And all they're doing is filling their brain with the word stress and they're seeing the word stress. And 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 what I believe you should do is actually cold turkey all of that. Like, like don't look at anything stress and just populate your brain with podcasts about like something that has nothing to do with stress um and but somewhere you want to be and that was kind of the theory i was sharing the other thing i wanted to share based on what you said too was um you know what, what my wrestling team in high school are we didn't wear a uniform we had a shirt and said believe on it and and that's all our coach cared about because he thought you know as if you can just truly believe and sometimes you just have to like bullshit yourself you know like sometimes you just bullshit yourself for 21 days and then you somehow believe it and i think that's kind of what you're saying not in a 21 day frame but similar thing that you just like you know the only people that do something are the ones that believe they can do it otherwise you just you're putting these barriers up and you're never doing anything and i think that's kind of how you're describing you know your ability to just even believe in yourself to to start a uh, an agency the other thing i wanted to tie to what you were saying um is i also think it's really important to have like this belief in your in your future self so the people that you know, they're going through tough times. A lot of times they get stuck in there because they just don't believe their future self is going to be able to make a change. And I think not only did you believe your future self to be able to start an agency, but you also said, if this agency doesn't go well, you can believe, you can trust your future self to get a job. And and that gave you like the bandwidth or the belief or whatever it is to say like, okay, you know what? I can do this, especially being young. I think, I think it's really important to say like, you know, before kid, before marriage, before like all the things that start to pile on top of your life, um, you know, we can take bigger risks. And then you added it, you, you added to it. Okay. Risk. You know, I, t- I took that big risk, but as families start to believe, uh, like, like, uh, believe in me or not believe in me, but trust me that, that I'm going to pay a salary and stuff, you know, there's you that responsibilities beyond yourself. Like right. And your that's employees now. Stuff. Right. Yeah. Yes. I, I just wanted to kind of, I don't know if you have anything to say to that. I can, I can move on, but that's kind of what I understood in, in everything you said. Yeah, no, that was that was perfect. I think you did a great way of like you did a great job of summing it up. I would also say too, when I was making that decision of like, okay, I'm gonna go all in and do the dang thing. Like one, I'm very confident in myself, but two, I was looking back at my past self and saying, like, when did it not work out for me? Mm-hmm. Like it's always worked out for me. I've always figured it out. Like I just have a history of getting what I want in a way that like I know that sounds very um very like strange, but I I get what I want. Like if I put my head down. And I, I, I figure it out. I always have been. And I thought, well, I've always figured it out. So why wouldn't my future self figure it out? Like, what would change? Yeah, can, yeah, that comes with competitors and being athletic. You get well, you get the iterations in, right? Like, you did something, and you fell. You, yeah. yeah, you get the reps in, and then like you, you forget the times you failed. Mm-hmm. The ones that remember are the ones you succeeded. And they just, you look back, and you're like, yeah, I might, I might have failed a hundred times, but then I succeeded that one time. And at the end of it, you won. Yeah. Well, and, yeah. and I'll add to that and say a lot of times what failure does is it gives you the mo- if you handle it correctly, it actually gives you the motivation. We talked about this on another episode, uh, but you know, I, I call it like fuck you motivation. And there's not a lot of more powerful motivators than like coming from failures or or someone doing something bad to you. And like that's I, what I, it, that was the yeah. I think fuck you motivation, like like you know, a lot of people t- turn that into anger and they turn into negative mm-hmm. motivators. But like you have the ability to take that and like really move it to this positive motivator. Sorry to all the kids listening. Uh, that's uh, I did say we could curse in the beginning of this. So. Um, what? Uh, let me go through. Uh, yeah, and the other thing I wanted to say with, with again, what you were saying is, and I'm kind of just repeating, but like your track record is what gives you confidence in the future, right? Like 
And 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 it is hard for people that might not have a good track record to like believe in that confidence. But like again, all you have to do is bullshit yourself to believe something. And if you do it for enough times, you just start believing in it. So um, no, I love that. Getting back to some of the business stuff and and you know, going from the solopreneur to eventually becoming like, you know, a full agency. Um, how did you guys get your first client? Oh my gosh. Okay, let me think back. My network. I okay, so I this is still something I do a lot of, but I do a lot of networking and I go on a lot of coffee dates and dinner dates and whatever it may be. But um, I really leveraged my network to get our first couple of clients back in 2020 or back in 2019, really. And I still do it today. I still do a healthy amount of networking and that really helps to bring in clients. I mean, of course, we have a sales team and we're doing a lot of lead gen and closing deals on the phone, but like I'm still out and about having conversations with people. I've just noticed that when I meet people, they, not to toot my own horn, but people like me very quickly. And when people like you, they trust you and they want to buy from you. And and then who ended up being your first hire? My first hire, oh, this is like such a sad story, but my first hire was an intern who then I offered a full-time role to who didn't end up working out. Is that something you still do where, you know, maybe you hire on an intern level or contracting level and then move into a full-time or do you hire people full-time if they feel like they're, if they seem like they're the right fit? That's a great question. So we don't do the same process I used to do in 2020. And it's just because we needed people with a lot more experience. Like when you're working with bigger clients, they expect more. um, I would say like people who have more experience and more professionalism. And so for that reason, we hire better talent now. But the process we go through is regardless of if you're full-time, part-time, whatever it may be, you start out as a contractor for at least 90 days. And the reason for that is because we want to make sure that, one, you like us, right? Like, I want to make sure that like you are enjoying your time with Neat, but also we want to make sure that you're a good fit culturally too. Because like during the interview process, you don't really get a feel for how somebody is going to work in the day-to-day because people always put their best foot forward. They can create Mm -hmm. the best, most professional resume. They can answer your questions perfectly, but you don't really know them until the first like 60 to 90 days. Like that's really where you get a feel for whether or not somebody is going to be a long-term fit. After that 90 day mark is when we have a conversation about bumping people over to WG status. Again, whether it's part-time, full-time, that's where we have that conversation. So I don't know if that's how a lot of agencies function or not. We but do it the just... same way. Okay. Okay. I'm yeah, glad we, I'm not we do a 90 day ramp. We do a 90 day ramp up, but there have been two people that have ramped up a lot quicker just because right off the bat, like you start seeing like the habits and how they work. And you're just like, okay, within a month, one person first month in ranked up, um, ramped up the full time. Second month got a promotion. Wow. It was like that quick. I was like, we need to keep this person for like forever. So we just. That's amazing. But that this process has just worked out really well for us. It's something we shifted to, I want to say in 2022. And we followed the process since. And I don't think we're going to be changing that anytime soon because we've had so much success with talent. I, and I asked the question because 
I've noticed that that seems to be the best practice for a lot of marketing agencies, especially in the market in the agency space, as opposed to just other jobs. Um, so I, 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 it does seem like kind of a best practice, Mike, and that's why I wanted to share get get that fact on another episode because I, I think it's really important for people that are just starting or learning to scale or things like that. Um, do you have any tricks for interviewing that kind of helps you get through like, you know, that perfect resume and understand who they really are? Mm, yes. Okay. So I had talked about how one of our core values at Need is ownership. One of the reasons why it's one of our values is because it's one of my personal values. And so as I was stepping back from the business, as I was stepping into that CEO overall, I'm like, how can Neat still feel like me at the end of the day? Like, how can Neat feel like me? And we kind of decided, like, how can my personal values carry over to the business? Ownership was one of those values. And so what we do is we build our core values into the interview process to kind of sift through who's a good fit and who's not a good fit. Because you can tell fairly quickly, like hard skills, like who's going to work out really well. But we have such a, we have such a um, family. This sounds so weird, but like we are like one big family over at Neat. The women I've hired are like the sisters I've never had. And everybody on the team feels the same way about, but like I've heard that from multiple people. And so we're very careful who we bring into the group. Um, and so with that, we include our core values in the interview process. So for example, ownership, I'll talk about ownership for a second. During the interview process, one of the questions we'll ask is, tell me about a time where you made a mistake and what you did after you made that mistake. If I hear somebody talk about how they've never made a mistake and they're perfect and everything is good, then like I automatically set their resume to the side. They don't, they don't make it any further in the interview process. The question isn't a question to trip you up. It's not meant to confuse you or to make you like twist things. Um, like, you know, the question, like, what's your worst trait? Like, I feel like that's such a classic interview question. And like a lot of people will be like, oh, I'm just like overly committed to work. Like I'm a workaholic. Like that is not what we're trying to get you to say at Neat. Like we genuinely want to hear about the mistakes you've made and how you've handled those mistakes. Or if you say a mistake and you're like, oh yeah, like that happened, but like it was my coworker's fault. Like again, like I'm going to take your resume and I, I'm going to set it to the side. I want to hear how you handle mistakes when you make them because everybody makes mistakes. And if you can't own up to the fact that you have made mistakes, I don't want you on my team. Did you come uh, up with those on your own or did you did you use a tool or work with someone to get those? That's a great question. No, we did not use a tool. Um, we came up with this between myself and my COO, who's pretty involved in the hiring process. Nice. And I guess, you know, that kind of leads into this whole community angle uh, that, that we try to focus on in the season. Um, you know, that one being very much employees and, and coworkers and things like that, especially even before they're they're hired. Um, you also mentioned your network earlier. Uh, so I want to focus a little bit on the community that that you've built mainly between like your peers. Um, and I found an article that you wrote that shared, it was like top tips, uh, for someone I can, I can look real quick at the article if you don't remember writing it or something, or if it was too long ago. Um, but it was someone, uh, looking to start a business and one of which you spent time building your network. Um, so can you kind of just talk, talk a little bit more about, I know you kind of discussed it a little bit, but can you dive a little bit deeper into who your network is, why it's valuable, what you've learned, all that kind of stuff? Yeah, absolutely. So a piece of advice I would definitely give people right off the bat is, start building your network before you need your network. Mm -hmm. If you need a network and you haven't built a network, it's too late. Like you, you're already 
starting up behind. So start building up your network years before you need them. I have always been a really great networker. I think I get it from my dad. My dad has a great network. He's a talker. He's very friendly. People like him. And I think I just saw what he did growing up and I took it and I started doing that when I was in college. So any networking event they had in college, I would go. Any opportunity to meet CEOs or CMOs from companies around town, I would go and I would take it. I took every internship opportunity I could throughout college just for the sake of building up my network. And it honestly really paid off. But what I ended up doing is... So I think a lot of people think like networking, they go, oh, I have to go to every event. Like I have to go to events. And if you are introverted and you're not comfortable in a crowded room, you're not going to excel at a networking event. Like you are not going to get the most out of the event. And there are other ways to network, right? So one way that I personally really like to network outside of going to events, because I do think that I do well at events, but if you don't, and something I do is I will take people to one-on-one coffee dates and taking people to a coffee date with no intention of like getting their business or anything, like it is so disarming, right? Because when you go to a networking event, people are like passing out how or um, passing out business cards, like Halloween candy. And they're talking about themselves and they're asking for, for your, you to buy their service or their product. And you're there for the sake of like making money, right? But when you're taking somebody to a coffee date, it's very disarming. They want to have a conversation with you. So that is something I've always done over the past 10 years is inviting somebody who I just want to be in their world or I want to be just involved with them in some way, shape or form. If I'm intrigued by them, I take them to coffee. I pay for their coffee and I ask them all about them. I do not make the conversation about me. In fact, I talk very little when I am taking somebody out to dinner or coffee. I just want to learn all about them and what they're working on. And then what I do is I do something for them. I don't expect anything in return. I want nothing in return, in fact, in that moment. But I will make an intro to somebody who I think they should meet. I will review their website or their marketing strategy, their social media. I'll give them tips. I will send them a contact of a journalist. I do something just because I think I should do something for that person. And that comes back tenfold every single time. Um, They will open up doors for me that I would not have been able to open myself. And so that has been really impactful. The other thing I do too is if there's somebody I want to meet and I have somebody in my network who's connected to them, I'm not afraid to ask for an intro. I'm not afraid to be like, hey, I see you're friends with that executive on that team. Like, I can you introduce me to them? I want to take them to coffee. Nine out of 10 times, they're not afraid to make an intro over email. And that's how I've also built my network too. Um, the other thing I've done, and I'm sure you guys are obviously doing this too, but if there's somebody who I want to get to know, I invite them onto my podcast yep. and I give them a platform. Giving people a platform is such a powerful way of building your network too. And that's one way I've done it. Anyone who I kind of want to work with, get to know, I invite them on my podcast. And a lot of times they'll be like, wait, what do you do again? Mm-hmm. Oh, you do PR and marketing? Oh, I actually need a PR agency. Can you tell me more? Or like, oh my gosh, my friend, she really needs to work with you. And I have gotten to know so many people that way. So again, like what I would say is there are so many different ways to build your network. It doesn't have to be going to conferences and summits. Yeah. yeah. And I think especially if you're long-term minded, <clears throat> you're building your network before you need it. It takes away the pressure of like needing to ask for the sale, which happens all the time in networking events. 
Exactly. Yeah. And I would say too, like when you have a really big network, you're getting leads all the time for people. Like you're just top of mind when people are out and about and they're having a conversation and they're like, Oh wait, I actually, I know, uh, I know Jen from Neat. Okay. You guys need to meet. Like we're just getting so many referrals and it's because of my network. So that's like another really great thing too, is like, well, it took me years to get here. I would say at least once or twice a week, I'm getting an email about an intro. Yeah. And just to kind of repeat some of the things you said, because I think it's important to to talk about them. Um, you, you Literally, as I was typing it, like as a note, you kind of said, and that's why I was like, ah, um, you know, when you offer something first, uh, you kind of set the foundation of the relationship as in, it's not just going to be a one-way street, which is kind of what they assume you're looking for. And to be honest, you know, if you say like, Hey, you know, I'm happy to help. Like, is there anything you need? People don't usually even, like ask you for anything, but you get the full credit for it. Like, that's just what I've noticed happened is like, you can offer the world. People don't usually like, you know, come back and ask for it. But again, you get like, you get all that credit for even asking. Um, the other line that I, I like a lot is ask for money. This is in the investing world, but I think it kind of goes in, in a lot of places, but ask for money, get advice, ask for advice, get money. And I always thought that was really important and kind of like is a lot of a lot of what you were saying where, you know, when you're just coming in for that money, it's just typically not the right approach and you typically get advice as opposed to, you know, when you're asking for advice, they they actually value that more. And they're like, oh, I like how this guy or girl approaches something, um, you know, maybe I would invest in them. So um, it's not just investing that kind of goes through advice or whatever it is. And I think that's uh, I think that goes really good. Um, in that article, you also wrote uh, who, you know, can get you further than what you know. You know, I, I know you kind of broke that down a little bit, but do you have a specific story of where that really, you know, shined? And if you don't, we can just move on. Oh, I don't know if I have a specific story exactly. Um, but I would say something that I didn't really understand when I was younger, but now I understand it. I would say like in the past couple of years is if you want to make a million dollars a year, don't hang out with people who are making $50,000 a year. Put yourself in rooms where you will be surrounded by people who are at the level you want to be at. Because like, what's the term? It's like osmosis. Like you will absorb their energy, their knowledge. You'll learn how they're having conversations, what questions they're asking, how they're, how they carry themselves. And it's almost like with that energy, you will then get to their level. And so I stopped hanging out. Not that I like don't hang out with people who are like, Gosh, this sounds really bad. I hope nobody takes this out of context. Um, I'm really careful who I do network with. And I'm very careful what rooms I am walking into because I want to be with those people who are making eight figures a year in their business or nine figures a year. Like That's where I want to be. So I'm spending time with those people and I'm going after conversations with those people because I know it rubs off on me. Um, as soon as I started to put myself in rooms with people who were above and beyond where I was at, I feel like I advanced way faster in my business. And also their networks, right? Like the network of someone who's making eight figures a year in their business or nine figures a year, their network is very different than your network and you want to be in their network, right? And so I would say, just be careful who you're networking with, right? It makes a really big difference. Yeah, again, you know, not to not to push this theory that I have, but like that's, that's the stress-free shampoo, right? You're trying yeah. to take away the people that are, not what you're looking for and surround yourself with people that you are uh, the type of people you are trying to replicate and, and things like that. So I think that's, I think that was a great point. Um, Alex, any other questions before I move into these last few questions? No, go ahead. 
Um, so these are some of the questions I, I tend to ask at the end. Uh, first one is if you had to teach something to other marketers, what would it be? Oh, it's how much time do we have? No. Okay. <laughs> let me think for a second. Your time. Yeah. <laughs> I would say one thing that I would teach other marketers would be to just deeply understand your customer, the person that you're targeting, whether it's like the clients you're going after, or uh, maybe it's a campaign you're performing for a client. You have to understand who's receiving that information and what they care about. I think a lot of marketers don't go beneath the surface and they think, oh, this person just like wants a new shirt. And it's like, no, they want that shirt because it's going to make them feel good. It's going to boost their confidence. And when they're confident, they're going to go out and make more money. Like there's just so much more to consumer behavior. And I think a lot of people, a lot of marketers just don't quite get to the center of the onion, if you will. Yeah. That's like I, asking why, right? Exactly. Yeah. How it's many like, quite, it's like seven layers down. Yeah, yeah. It's just like peeling back the layers of it. And Again, I think a lot of marketers are just very like surface level mm-hmm. and that's not how you're going to win clients or put on really good campaigns. And I think what happens, yeah. the, the byproduct of that is you start to sell features, not benefits. You start to say like, you know, this is what I want to push. These are the things I work. So this is the AI fanciness that I work so hard mm-hmm. on. I want to push AI, but really it's not pushing AI. It's, it's pushing the efficiencies that you're going to get and, and making your life easier so that you don't need to focus on whatever. Um, right. So I think that's- You got to ground it. Yeah. And I think that's usually the byproduct of that problem is that people start pushing features and not and not benefits. Um, yeah. Or focusing on the wrong thing. They think yeah. that people want this and they're really focused on like healing a symptom. Yeah. As no, opposed correct. to like the real- Yeah. Great, great thing to add there. Um, how can you guys work with other marketing agencies or like what services can you partner with other agencies? So in other words, like what do agencies or, or in other words, what do agencies tend to reach out to you for? Other agencies tend to reach out to us when their clients need to reach more people. So with social media marketing, a lot of times you're kind of hitting the same people again and again and again. And same with email marketing, which it's not a bad thing, right? Because you have to see something 10, 15, 20 times before you make a purchasing decision. But if you want to bring more people in to your website, to your social media, to your email campaigns, that has to involve PR. So like you need to be getting on podcasts or you need to be getting into different digital and print publications or speaking on stages. And so that's where a lot of agencies will connect with us and we'll either do like a referral cut or we'll do white labeling. And that seems to work really well. And a lot of other agencies just really like our approach to PR a ton of PR agencies out there or marketing agencies will like push out a press release once a month and they'll just wait for their client to bring news to them. And that's truly not the way to do PR in 2024. I think that worked maybe 20 years ago, but things are just different nowadays. So for example, we do a lot of news jacking, which Mm. sounds kind of wild, but essentially what it means is we're constantly looking at trends and breaking news and we're figuring out how can we latch our client on to that trend or that breaking news topic. And so we get a ton of features for our clients from doing that. So other agencies see it, they like it, they bring clients to us. That's really interesting. Um, one in-depth question there. When you're doing that, what did you call that? News tracking or what? News jacking, like jacking the news. Oh, jacking. Okay. When you're doing that, is the is like is the output to go to whatever the source was and try to get your client 
feature there, like like essentially tying in, or are you doing a separate publication in reference to that trend? Yeah, that's a great question. So sometimes it can be both, but I'll give you an example. So we had a client who, well, we still have a client. She's still with us. She works in emergency management. So she does a lot with like natural disasters, um, school shootings, things like that. And so in November, I think it was November, there was someone who died at a Taylor Swift concert. And so we saw it, we saw it all over TikTok, we saw it on the news. And so what we did is we reached out to every journalist who covered Taylor Swift specifically and pitched our client to that journalist to talk about concert safety. And so Um. now our client has been featured on USA Today multiple times talking about Taylor Swift and concert safety. And so now when you Google Taylor Swift, like our client pops up. So there's different ways to do it. Very unfortunate. Uh, unfortunately, there was that rap show too that like a few people died last mm-hmm. year. Like, I think the Taylor Swift one was in like South America or something. Yeah, it's crazy. But yeah, what we're doing is we're just keeping up with the news and we're like, how can we attach our clients to this? Right. And you can do this with almost any any trend, any breaking news topic in any client. So we could have looked at that and we could have been like, hmm, okay, maybe another angle for another client would have been like, what do you wear to, to, I don't know, how do I want to phrase this? I'm very much on the spot right now, but maybe it could have been like, what to pack for your next Taylor Swift concert? Or what do you, because the weather was really hot, right? Or like, mm-hmm. how what, what to wear to like a concert where you're going to be standing in the heat all day? Like there are different topics and different ways to connect clients yeah. with breaking news. And sometimes it takes just like a little bit of creativity and that's where our team really right. shines. I you're am not the best at that. Exactly. I'm like more of a generalist, but our Hmm. strategists are like next level when it comes to that. That's really cool. I like that. Yeah. So you see like the, the trends and you're, you're, you're finding like, what's a hook. Maybe it turns into like, here's seven things that you should do next time you prepare to stay safe. Or it could be, there's a hook here. I can actually reach out to the people that manage this and promote. That's cool. I like that. Correct. Yeah. And there's also a follow-up story that could happen Mm -hmm. too. It's not just like here, let's talk about this specific topic, but maybe there's a second story that follows that initial story that we were looking at. Yeah, no, I like that. And, and actually what I thought of is, is that's essentially what meme accounts do, right? Like meme accounts, their whole goal is to get attention. Um, and so clearly if that's where they go to and that model works, so you're bringing that practice into the marketing PR side of things. So I, I think that's very, very smart. Um, and then to take to take the original or the last question and kind of flip it, if a client asks, you know, can you do this and it's a service you actually don't currently provide, how do you typically handle that request? That's a great question. So what we typically do is we will either hire someone if we think that we could hire someone and train them up or we could find someone who actually does that really well and we could do a good job with that project, we will hire. Or the other thing we'll do is we'll partner up with another agency on the project. Um so yeah, there's different ways of of tackling that. I really hate to send business away to other agencies. Like if we have a, a client who comes to us and they're wanting like web design, PR, marketing, all the things. And I have to say like, oh, we can't do web design. What we've seen happen in the last couple of years is we've missed out on hundreds of thousands of dollars, just like referring them to another agency and having them be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like we'll come back later for PR or marketing. A lot of times they don't. And so something that we are doing is we're in the middle of an acquisition. So we don't have to keep sending clients away for web design specifically. We can then handle that and it could be a one-stop shop. 
For those of you who don't have the cash flow, maybe to uh, to acquire, you can also just partner with Dev Noodle, the sponsor of the episode. So <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> um, couple more, a few more questions. Uh, if you were listening to the show, what topics would you like us to cover? Oh, oh my <laughs> gosh. Um, I think we're, I, I would love to see like mergers and acquisitions. Oh my God, words are hard. Mergers and acquisitions, just because that's kind of where I'm at and how I'm growing my business. So I think that topic is really interesting, but I don't see a lot of agency owners talking about mergers and acquisitions. It's, it's something that, you know, one out of every four episodes that we do kind of, you know, either they're thinking about acquiring or something like that. So I, I think, especially as we build this community uh, that I probably talk, told you about before, but, you know, we're trying to build a community with all of our guests to help referrals and to help things like that. Um, so, so I think, uh, you, you know, focusing maybe like a, whether it's like a conversation between all the guests or something like that, I think yeah. that's something we're definitely going to focus I really on. like yeah, that. There's an episode that we did um, with um, Cass Bailey from um, Slice Communications. I got to find the episode number, but that one, she spends a lot of time going in on um, mergers and acquisitions from the side of being acquired and then buying herself out Ooh, of the acquisition. I want to listen to that one. I was, on was, I was on Spotify one day and I was like literally typing in the search bar like mergers and acquisitions for agency owners. And I just like wasn't finding a lot of information like when people talk about M&A, they like don't go in deep enough and it's very mm. vague. And I'm like, no, no, no. Like I want details. Like tell me the deal yeah. structure. And yeah, I'm give sure me the case study. Like, yeah. Give me the case study. Like what problems did you see during the acquisition? Like I just like need so much more information. We have a few people that, that mm -hmm. uh, I forget his name, but uh, there's someone else that we can intro you to as well. And then literally the top note on my entire like little doc that I work off of says intro to cast question mark. Talk about M&A. Uh, so yes, we will, uh, we'll try to get that intro to you. Um, Thank you. a couple, a couple more questions. Are you guys looking to hire any positions right now? Not right now, but hopefully post acquisition we will. So mm. stay tuned. Perfect. Um, and then last question and what I, you know, the last question that I ask on our discovery call. So before this is what should I ask you that will make this a great episode? Um, and that tied directly to my last question. So I'm excited. I'm not, not to put pressure on the, the answer, but, um, last question is any books, podcasts, or newsletter recommendations? Yes. Okay. I talked about how important it is for marketers to understand the customer. You have to understand consumer psychology. The book that I can't recommend enough is called Invisible Influence. It is so good. If you work in marketing, PR, communications, such a game changer. It has like a blue cover and it has like a little like magnet on it. I've seen it. the cover. Yeah. Buy it. If you haven't read it, it's a good one. Um, I actually have to go back and read it again. That one was great. Let me look at my bookshelf. Um, look I read so many books. I read, I'm always reading like seven to eight books at a time, but I would say Invisible Influence because it kind of goes along with the episode. We still have a little more time. Do you have any other? Yes. Okay. The other podcast. So I would say like podcast wise, because not everyone likes to read books, right? But I'm a weirdo and I would sit at home and read books all weekend. I love the show, My First Million. I don't know if you guys have listened to it or not, but My First Million is so yeah, good. It's my shower podcast. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, I listen really to good. it in the shower and like when I'm driving around in the car. But um, 
they come up with like these really fun business ideas. They interview really interesting founders, like people who are just like on such a different level, like people who are making like hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars. It's just, it's very, very interesting material and they're highly entertaining. So oftentimes I'm like listening and laughing throughout the episode. Perfect. Uh, and as I would come up to the end of the episode, I just want to give you an opportunity to mention how people can find you and anything else you'd like to end with. Yes. Okay. So you can find me at Nate underscore the agency on Instagram. And that's Nate has an N-E-A-T, not meat. For some reason, when I say meat, people go, oh, like meat, like do you guys market meat? And I would, if a meat company wants to pay me, I will market the shit out of some meat. So anyways, Nate underscore the agency. And then I'm on LinkedIn, Jen Hartman. And that's Hartman with two N's on LinkedIn. We have a website, neattheagency.com. Awesome. And thank you so much for coming on the show. And for those of you who've learned something new from this episode, please consider giving us a like or a follow so we can continue getting the highest quality of guests. And as always, thank you for listening, Jen. This was an amazing episode. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Masters in Marketing Agency podcast. I hope you got a ton of value out of this episode. And before we go, I just want to thank our sponsors, DevNoodle. DevNoodle provides marketing agencies with the ability to offer their clients unlimited website design, build, and management services with fixed monthly plans. If website design, development, and maintenance is holding your agency back from growing, please reach out to us at devnoodle.com, where we make websites easy, easy for you and easy for your clients, devnoodle.com.